0: Today we've got part two of the Wu Li Pei story, and his story is important as not only did he play a role in Taiwan's fledgling democracy days, but also because he's a good example of the Taiwan diaspora. In the 1960s and 70s, many tens of thousands of Taiwanese went into self-exile, with most heading to the United States. The people who became Taiwanese Americans did so for a variety of reasons, but it's probably fair to say that most were seeking opportunities more readily available in a democratic free society. Taiwan in the 1960s and 1970s was a place where freedom of expression, be it in art or politics, was severely limited. The Taiwan Diaspora was a gift for America, a whole bunch of smart, hardworking people. These folks today are getting up there in age, but their descendants are like their parents, enriching America's economy and culture. Happily, many Taiwanese-Americans are also increasingly heading back to enrich their parents' home country of Taiwan. A couple of examples might be basketball star Jeremy Lin or Invita tech wizard Jensen Huang. But let's get back to the Wuli Pay story, part two. Enjoy.
1: Formosa Files is sponsored by the Frank C. Chen Cultural Foundation. Frank Chen, Chen Qichuan, served as the mayor of Kaohsiung City from 1960 to 1968, and founded the Kaohsiung Medical College.
0: Formosa Files Today we're going to complete our look at the life of Taiwanese independence advocate Wu Li Pei. Listeners who have not heard part one should definitely go listen to that first. So we left this story back in 1967. 33-year-old Wu has been warned, because of his association with Taiwanese independence activists, that he's in danger himself. And he's been given a private warning by an intelligence chief saying, you need to get out of the country as soon as you can. This, however, is easier said than done. It's martial law, right? And travel overseas is restricted. You could, during that time, go overseas for business or study, but a business trip is obviously not a long-term solution, so Ulipay decides to attend college in the United States. He manages to find one offering a one-year business degree and with cheap tuition that he could afford only 250 US dollars a semester. Wow, things have changed, huh?
1: Yeah, but there was a last minute problem. You recall in the last episode, Wooly Pay went straight from university to working.
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, normally you'd have two or three years of military service. So, did he get one of those medical exemptions, you know, for being flat-footed, colorblind or something?
1: Kind of. He was exempt from military service because he was underweight. I forget the specific weight requirements, but yeah, if you're too light, too heavy, you didn't get the honor of serving.
0: <laughs> yeah, something of an incentive uh, for some people probably to starve themselves or pig out. I've I've heard a few stories about this, actually.
1: Yeah, funny stuff. I would have thought the small guys would have been good for tanks or submarines, Oh, anyway, Wu Li Pei received an invitation from the Ministry of Education. He had to undergo military training for students to study abroad. This was a three-month training camp in Beitou, Taipei.
0: Okay, but we're not talking about military training so much as I would assume a political training.
1: Yeah, uh, he says that he just had one session on the firing range. Most of his time was being subjected to propaganda.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so this would be to strengthen their immune system against the corrupting foreign influences that they were soon to encounter. As you might imagine, these political lessons uh, would be incredibly
1: dull. Yes, but Li had some fun playing the role of the perfect KMT patriot. This actually worked too well and a colonel at the training camp talked to him about joining the KMT. Li Pei said he'd uh, go look for a sponsor, but of course didn't follow it up.
0: Okay, so he's passed one more hurdle, but there's another one, and actually it's the biggest challenge. Getting a passport. Now, this is something that today we take for granted. It's a, a right, but...
1: Not so easy for someone with a history of meeting activists. Plus, he's from a family with a black mark. His brother had spent years in prison. So, the passport
0: office starts investigating, and, you know, you never know what could happen. There's many, many people who were denied passports.
1: And Uli Pei has reasons to be fearful. One of his NTU classmates, his university classmates, was arrested the evening before he was to leave for the U.S. and sentenced to three years in prison.
0: Whoa. So, Wu needs a plan, and what he does is leave the passport application to the very last moment, rush the process by doing some name-dropping, and he had luck on his side. He gets his passport, he flies to the U.S. To be exact, he's heading to Fort Hayes State University for a one-year graduate business program, which he started in late January. His wife, Jenny, and their two boys moved back to the family hometown of Da to live with his
1: parents. January in Kansas. Eric, I'm assuming that's pretty cold, uh, especially if you're coming from Taiwan.
0: Yeah, I have not actually been to Kansas in the winter, but I have friends that live there. And uh, yeah, uh, let's just say shiveringly, freezingly, bone chillingly cold. How's that?
1: Mm, Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And uh,
0: Wu Li Pei seems to agree. He says in his memoir, quote, whenever I open the door... I was greeted by a blast of Kansas winter air that almost knocked me back into the house.
1: But weather aside, he likes his new home. Yes, but his graduate classes were
0: tough, and the biggest issue was language. He had managed to pass the TOEFL exam, but exams, of course, are one thing and classes are another. He found the language barrier quite a challenge. Lipe writes, quote, Those first few weeks of classes were the most challenging of my life.
1: He'd go home dejected, but determined. He would just need to work harder, working hard day after day, morning to night. But there are only so many hours you can squeeze out of a day.
0: And he says the worst thing was the pop quizzes a certain Professor Thomas would give. This elderly professor would hand back the graded tests in front of the entire class. From best grade to worse. And this is something that still happens in Taiwanese schools very frequently. (laughs) And it's it's embarrassing. And Wu was embarrassed as well. He writes, quote, waiting to hear Li Pei Wu after all the other names have been called, and then taking the walk of shame to the front of the class to collect my paper was torture.
1: He found a solution though. He borrowed notebooks from a couple of the top students and intensely studied their notes. And he aced the next test. In fact, he was top place. Now, such a miraculous turnaround had the professor wondering, hmm, cheating. Come to my office after class, he, he told him.
0: And Li Pei was not happy at this implication that he had cheated. He was rather upset, actually. And he tells the professor, well, you, you think I cheated? Test me here and now. So
1: the professor does, and Wu aces the test. A major loss of face for the professor, but he swallowed his pride, apologized, and took Li Pei under his wing. They would become good friends. This professor, Thomas, his mentor, like a, a father figure, and uh, he often invited Li Pei to his home.
0: And years later, Fort Hayes State University honored Li Pei with an Alumni Achievement award for outstanding achievement based on meritorious service to society or the community. And he was the Grand Marshal of the Homecoming Parade.
1: But that glories in the future. He's graduated and looking for work. He's got lots of experience in Taiwan with the Zhanghua Commercial Bank and then a private company. He's got a strong academic record, a nice recommendation from Professor Thomas. So he's able to get some job interviews. Yeah, but nothing comes of them.
0: And Wu is not really sure why, but probably his English not being so good. And, you know, there's always a suspicion that these companies were not quite ready to hire an Asian person, you know, there's a Mm -hmm. degree of of racism, that kind of stuff.
1: The continual rejection is depressing, but he continued to look for work One day, he sees a job listing from the National Bank of Alaska. They're looking for a Japanese-speaking communications clerk.
0: So Wu just can't believe his eyes. The bank is looking for someone fluent in Japanese and with banking operations and international
1: trade experience. A perfect match for his skill set. English ability was not an obstacle. They only cared about him speaking fluent Japanese.
0: So he got the job. Woohoo! But if you find the winter in Kansas cold, let's say he's going from the frying pan to the fire.
1: That's not really the right idiom, Eric. But yeah. (laughs) No. He's headed north to an even colder Alaska. So before he
0: went, he borrows some money and buys his first car, a red and black 1968 Dodge Dart. I think I've seen one of these. They're not that big. So... As he drives out of the dealership, he thinks to himself, I'm living the American dream. A new car. So, John, what do you think he would do with this new car? One would assume he would take a road trip to Alaska, yeah?
1: Mm, Yeah.
0: No, no, no. That would be crazy. It's time to go to Las
1: Vegas, baby. Las Vegas. Okay. (laughs) The intoxicating desert expanses, the neon lights of Vegas, the blackjack table. And only a few hours later, he's lost $500, the money he needed for getting set up in Alaska. Ouch.
0: We can probably safely uh, assume that his uh, good wife cannot have been too happy about
1: that. He says she didn't speak to him for two months, and it took two and a half years for him to pay off all his debts. Yeah, for immigrants, those
0: early years uh, are really tough. Pay says his wife Jenny did whatever work she could find. Her English wasn't so good, but she was able to earn money as a babysitter and later worked as a cleaning lady at a hotel. However, she eventually landed a good job at the duty-free store at the airport, and this
1: was because she could speak Japanese. That's really interesting that the Japanese language skills are coming in handy. Yeah. He'd also
0: gotten his job because of his Japanese language skills.
1: Forgotten now, but Japan was such a huge economic force back then, rapidly growing, and there were lots of opportunities. There were very few Japanese speakers outside of Japan. As we noted in our podcast on Taiwan's economic miracle, Taiwanese familiarity with Japanese was a contributing factor to economic growth here with Japanese companies setting up factories and offices in Taiwan.
0: Definitely. So Wu Li Pei is working for the National Bank of Alaska in Anchorage, Burr, and made great progress. By the end of his seventh year, he'd been promoted to senior vice president and chief financial officer. In contrast, he writes, "Quote my seven years of employment at CCB." So he's talking about when he was back in Taiwan, working in Taiwan, had yielded not one promotion. Then in 1976. The Wu family became naturalized U.S. citizens.
1: He left the bank in 1979 and was recruited by a guy called Frank Murkowski for the Alaska National Bank of the North. Although just there a few years, Wu Li became president of the bank and he also made a lifelong friend with this Frank Murkowski, who went on to be a senator from 1981 to 2002 and then governor of Alaska.
0: Yeah, and this guy's legacy continues to this day. His daughter is a senator from Alaska, the Murakowski family. So Frank, the father of Murakowski, was appointed chair of the Foreign Relations Subcommittee on East Asia and Pacific Affairs, which meant he had frequent interaction with the Taiwanese government.
1: Not bad. Uh, Wu Li Pei mentions that one time when Murkowski was here in Taiwan in talks with President Jiang uh, Jinguo, he brought up the issue of his friend having visa problems uh, visiting Taiwan. Mm, a little guanxi
0: always helps. So Li Pei finished his banking career in Alaska in early 1982 and moved to the much sunnier Los Angeles where he was president and chief CEO of the General Bank, where he spent 20 years.
1: An interesting side note, while at the bank, he was notorious for being frugal. As president and CEO, he wanted to set a good example of not wasting money. Get this, he flew everywhere in economy class.
0: Yeah, it's incredible. Hard to imagine that today. And while at the bank, he still found time for working on projects related to the Taiwanese-American community. And he kept up his political advocacy for Taiwan. So Pang Ming-Min, or Dr. Pang, if you've listened to previous episodes, you know who this is. He's a towering figure in the independence movement who passed away not long ago. So Dr. Peng asked Wu Lipei to organize Peng's return to Taiwan after two decades in exile. This organizing included Wu having a secret meeting with President Li Deng-hui to discuss Peng's return and ask for his help in getting a passport for Peng.
1: Peng and his entourage returned to Taiwan on November 1st, 1992 via Hong Kong. Uh, despite the planning, there was a, a slight hitch, and they arrived in Hong Kong a, a little later than uh, they wanted. They uh, they had to avoid arriving on October thirty first. October thirty first. That date familiar to you? Yes, Halloween. <laughs> but actually, <laughs> in Taiwan. Oh yeah, I forgot <laughs> about that, but you know you, you yeah. know what I'm getting at.
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, we did that episode where we looked at former holidays, and October 31st was one of them. When I was young here in Taiwan, we still celebrated it. And it is, or uh, it was, a public holiday, celebrating the birthday of none other than Chiang Kai-shek.
1: Yeah, Dr. Peng was not going to set foot uh, on his homeland uh, after two decades on Jiang Kai-shek's birthday. Yeah, so they stayed an extra night in Hong Kong. Anyway, they arrive in Taiwan, November 1st, greeted by huge cheering crowds. They traveled throughout Taiwan, visiting supporters, giving speeches, and a very warm reception everywhere. So
0: fast forward a couple of years, 1996, and we've got Taiwan's first direct presidential election. Ming Ming became the candidate for the DPP, and he asks Wu Li to help him with his campaign. But of course, we know uh, Li hui he won that election quite handily.
1: Mm-hmm. Wu Li pai continued his work for Taiwanese Americans in the U.S. and in promoting Taiwan independence. Uh, he's still at the general bank at this time. With several
0: friends, he set up a campaign organization in the United States called the Overseas Support Group for Abien's presidential bid. The group raised funds and organized groups of Taiwanese to return to Taiwan to vote for Chen Sui-bien. To this day in Taiwan, we don't have absentee balloting. So for mm. presidential elections or all elections, you have to come back to your registered domicile mm. area.
1: Yeah. Interesting, yes. Uh, So Wu retired from banking in 2002. Two years later, he returned to Taiwan to live here after accepting President Chen's offer to serve as his senior advisor. But, you know, this
0: time as senior advisor was a bit disappointing. He was seldom asked for advice, and the advice he gave was a little heated. And much of the frustration came from working with Self-serving politicians and officials, and things just not getting done.
1: In Wu Li Pei's memoir, Two Countries, he gives a mixture of praise and criticism of President Chen. The the book's a must-read for any politicos out there. Chen Shui Bian's second term was dogged with accusations of corruption. After his presidency, he and his wife were convicted on bribery charges.
0: So Wu Li Pei uh, actually got caught up in all of this uh, corruption stuff. He was called in as a witness in one of Abian's corruption cases, in particular to answer questions about a $2 million diplomacy fund. And then Wu himself was charged. He was eventually found not guilty twice because, you know, the battle moved up to the high court, but it was three years of very stressful legal battles.
1: A terrible time for him and his family, especially for a a man in his late 70s. But afterward, he still had an appetite for politics. When Tsai Ing-wen was elected president in 2016, she invited him to be her senior advisor. He accepted, and uh, he says there were several areas he wanted to push during her presidency. Uh, These included establishing a stronger Taiwan identity instead of the old uh, ROC one. He wanted to fight corruption and waste in government as well.
0: In 2020, as uh, we all know, Tsai Ing-wen was very comfortably re-elected. She uh, ran against the former mayor of Kaohsiung, a certain Daniel Han. And the DPP also got some welcome assistance from the Chinese Communist Party, actually, because in 2019, all the way up to the election, China was crushing dissent in Hong Kong and giving us a a really good example of why one country, two systems is uh, not going to work here. Indeed. John, you seem to be quite a big fan of this memoir, Two Countries, and I'm interested like why you felt this way and- Well,
1: I like the honesty of the author. You know, those sections which many other people would not have included because quite frankly, they're embarrassing.
0: Yeah, you mean like uh, blowing all your savings at a casino in Las Vegas? But that's an early mistake, and it's uh, kind of almost funny in a way. There, there are other examples of, of errors, yeah?
1: Um, okay. When he first arrived in the United States, he joined the World United Formosans for Independence, WUFI. Very soon afterwards, there was a major dilemma for the leadership and its members.
0: Ah, you're referring to the assassination attempt on Zhang Jingguo in April 1970. Peter Huang and his brother-in-law were active participants in this uh, attempt. They were members of the WUFI. Active
1: participants in this attempt. They tried to kill the guy. That's very active.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm being as diplomatic as possible. Okay. Peter Huang and his brother-in-law were members of WUFI.
1: Yes, they made an assassination attempt on um, then-Vice Premier Zhang a Chiang uh, Kai-shek's son, of course, at the Plaza Hotel in New York City.
0: And that is another story for another time, but a very interesting story. So anyway, this World United uh, Formosans for Independence Organization, uh, Wufi, <laughs> the most established Taiwanese independence organization, it distanced itself from the two would-be assassins. But... This actually disappointed some of their supporters.
1: And Wu Li Pei was one of them. And he recounts an incredible conversation with Peng Ming-min and a friend called John. He says, quote, None of us were happy with uh, the organization's change to a less aggressive approach. We wanted something more radical. We believed a revolution was needed, end quote. I don't know if uh, they were drinking, but they were talking about establishing a revolutionary army. Here's a quote for you to read. Okay.
0: Quote, "...the three of us huddled in my living room, throwing out any and all suggestions. John said he knew of a Mr. Liu who actually had his own guerrilla force in a mountainous region near Seattle. Dr. Peng said he had some connection with a Palestinian militant group who could train our own revolutionary force."
1: Wow, guerrilla force in the mountains, Palestinian militant. Oh, incredible, isn't it? They're sitting around talking about a revolutionary force.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely insane. Um, It didn't get much past just
1: talk, though, right? That's right. Uh, a few uh, inquiries, but yeah, uh, nothing concrete. Uh, no uh, militant revolutionary force eventuated.
0: Yeah, thankfully. And in, in a way, it's not really a surprise, is it?
1: Correct, yes. In his uh, memoir, Wu Li Pei admits it was rather foolish, quote, When I think back, I can't help but chuckle at our naivete and half-baked plans. Although we had no clue how to execute a revolution, I can say with pride that we were earnest in our convictions and ready to lay down our lives for Taiwan.
0: Ready to lay down your life for Taiwan. Um, Yeah. It doesn't matter what your politics are, right? It's, uh always impressive when someone Mm -hmm. has a very, very strong conviction and is willing to take the consequences for it. But I'm sure I'm happy we didn't have an armed insurrection here because Mm. as it turned out, we became a very democratic, open society where you can advocate for any political position you want. Mm -hmm. In any case, it's time for John and I to lay down our commitment to these microphones right now. Um, John, (laughs) what was the book uh, that you were quoting from today?
1: Yeah, I'll give the full name. Two Countries, My Taiwanese-American Immigrant Story. It's very reasonably priced too. So yeah, go read
0: it. That's all the time we've got for today. Thanks for listening to Formosa Files. I'm Eric Michael Smith.
1: I'm John Ross. Bye.